Hello, Basement Programmers, and welcome. This is the Basement Programmer Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Moore. The opinions expressed in the Basement Programmer Podcast are those of myself and any guests that I may have, and are not necessarily those of our employers or organizations we may be associated with. Feedback in the Basement Programmer Podcast, including suggestions on things you'd like to hear about, can be emailed to me at tom at basementprogrammer.com. And I'm always on the lookout for people who would like to come on the podcast and talk about anything technology-related. So drop me a line. And now for this episode. Hello, Basement Programmers, and welcome to the May episode of the Basement Programmer Podcast. In this episode, my guest is Brandon Minnick, and we're going to talk about .NET and mobile computing. Now, Brandon and I have both spent a good deal of time in mobile computing over the last few years, so spending an episode of the podcast talking about the evolution of mobile sounded like a lot of fun. Brandon, welcome. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Happy to be here. It's a pleasure. Uh, So, Brandon, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, let's see. About, gosh, eight years ago now, 2015, um, I... Changed my career entirely and moved out west to San Francisco, where I joined a company called Xamarin that was doing really cool stuff at the time where they basically let you make mobile apps in C Sharp for iOS and Android. Uh, the apps were totally native because uh, all Xamarin, well, say all Xamarin really did. I mean, obviously, it takes a lot of engineering effort to do it, <laughs> but yeah, the, under, underneath the hood, it wasn't super complicated in design. It was just they wrapped every single iOS API and every single Android API. So all, gosh, I think they're up over hundreds of thousands of APIs. Um, they basically just wrap those APIs, um, bring them to us in C Sharp, and then we can write our iOS and Android apps using all the same design paradigms, uh, the same APIs. And when you compile it down, it still compiles down to the native app. Um, so yeah, I had been working on my MBA at the time. I, I went uh, back to school while I was working full-time, living in Florida, um, and really got excited about joining a startup. And that's when I found out about Xamarin. And this was you know, 2015. Mobile phones weren't super new, um, but I wanted to still try and catch that wave. You know, I remember the, like the internet wave of the late 90s where very much boom and bust, but um, I figured if I can get in on this mobile wave, um, like I love my my iPhone and I, I love apps, so it'd be really cool to make them. And even if this thing goes belly up, well, it would have been a fun ride. So, so yeah, I joined yeah. Um Shortly afterwards, they got acquired by Microsoft. Um, so I ended up becoming a Microsoft employee for the next seven years. And uh, a few months ago, September... 2022, I joined you here at AWS as a .NET developer advocate. Awesome. So, so what was it? And actually, I remember, uh, I remember Xamarin because I was actually a customer back in 2015, building some uh, prototype apps. So, what was that? What was that? That was really great for developers uh, about the product. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, my favorite thing was I didn't have to learn new languages. Like I had uh, familiarity with C-sharp. I'm definitely more of a C-sharp expert now after spending the last seven to eight years of my life using it exclusively. Uh, but I knew C-sharp. 
I, I didn't want to learn Objective-C. Swift wasn't a thing yet. Kotlin wasn't a thing yet. And what really excited me was, well, now I can make mobile apps, which I think sounds really cool. And I don't have to learn a new language, let alone two new languages. And nowadays it's, well, you kind of got to know a little Objective-C. You got to know a little Swift for iOS. Well, a lot of Swift. Uh, and then Android, you, like, you still got to know a little bit of Java, even if you're writing your app in Kotlin. So uh, really, it was avoiding four languages. And and yeah, the fact that you know there's a lot of secret sauce in the compiler where it would still compile down to the native app. So you would have all the native um, UIs, like native performance. Uh, the only difference is you got to write your code in C-sharp. You got to share code between your iOS and Android app because it's all same language, same code base, just like we might share code between our backend and our front end. And heck, actually, you could share code between your backend and your mobile app if you're doing your backend in C Sharp. So, um, yeah, it ended up being this really cool opportunity where um, I got to become a mobile developer. I didn't have to learn <laughs> all these new languages and, and then seeing the C-sharp language and .NET grow and um, evolve into where it is today too. Now, if I'm being honest, I don't see a reason to leave C-sharp or .NET. I can, I can make websites, I can make mobile apps, I can do IoT, I can do AIML. Uh, you can kind of do it all in C-sharp. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, like you, I love C-sharp. It's sort of been my, uh, well, since about 2000, it's been my language of choice. So. So um, back in 2002, we had the, the .NET Compact framework, and, and that kind of allowed us to write some mobile apps. But Xamarin really kind of opened that up pretty broad, didn't it? Yeah, so this is funny. Um, we, had, we had chatted a little bit before the show, and I told you I had never even heard of this. So I'm curious, if you, if you don't mind going into a little bit of the background of what this was what it is? Is it still around? Sure. Uh, well, is it still around? I, not really, because it was it was <laughs> developed specifically for, do you remember the Windows mobile phones? Mm -hmm. So pre-Windows mobile 8, you know, you had mobile 5, etc. Well, this was a version of .NET, obviously, specifically created to run on those, you know, low-powered ARM devices. So we could make... Uh, you can make mobile apps. We could use C Sharp or VB if that was your your poison of choice, uh, and kind of share code. Uh, although there were some really hidden gotchas, like you'd have enums that had different values based on which platform you were running. So it was a what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that that was that came as a surprise if you tried to share things that were compiled. Uh, the values weren't quite what you were expecting. So that that seems wrong. That seems like antithetical yeah. to everything that <laughs> .NET stands for. <laughs> like, the whole idea of an enum, right? Yeah, right. And like yeah. a typed language uh, yeah. with a compiler that'll give you errors at compile time. Uh, no, that's cool. Yeah, I remember because um, yeah, you mentioned sharing code was tough, and I remember even mm. when I first joined Xamarin we shared code between our iOS and Android because if you can picture it, you got Visual Studio open, 
And you have a CS proj for iOS mm -hmm. that contains the iOS SDK with all the iOS APIs. And you have a CS proj for Android that contains all the, the Android SDK with all the Android APIs. And then the way we were sharing code between them originally um, was with, well, originally, originally, um, you're just doing DLL linking. So you had to pre-compile a different library. When you compile a CS proj, it spits out a DLL. And then you would just kind of point to that spot on your hard drive. Um, then eventually along came shared projects, which were a little better. They're not exactly CS projs. Um, they're SH projs, <laughs> SH proj. Um, and they certainly had their own limitations, but I still use them in certain cases because they're good for certain things. But then really what it was when I joined Xamarin was, uh, PCLs and those were a pain, um, because there was no standardization across .NET at the time. And it kind of what you're saying about like enums being different values. Now I'm talking about this out loud. Yeah, like that makes sense because like with PCLs, they were portable class libraries um, and they would have to target those specific platforms. So um, to share code between um, iOS and Android projects, there was a couple like, PCL 111 and seven, and they had these random numbers too, that also didn't make any sense, <laughs> but yeah, you just had to know like PCL 111s will support, and I'm making this up because I don't remember it's been too long and <laughs> you don't have to use them anymore, <laughs> but yeah, you just had to know like PCL 111 would um, support iOS and Android and Windows phone and WPF. And then if you wanted to do something with, WinForms, you had to find a different PCL that also supported WinForms. And um, fortunately, all that went away when .NET Standard came. Yay. And then all that <laughs> standard stuff went away when, we'll say, .NET evolved back to being called .NET. So when .NET Core became just .NET 5. Yeah. Um, especially with .NET 6 was a big standardization because .NET 6 folded in the mono runtime, which is the C-sharp runtime that Xamarin used under the hood. Um, so everything's kind of unified nowadays and everything's, we'll say, I don't want to say it's easier because <laughs> nothing's easy, but <laughs> you know, it's a lot more simple. You don't have to learn all these other things on top of learning C-sharp and on top of learning mobile or ASP.NET Core or whatever you're working on. So man, yeah, I can only imagine back in the early 2000s, were you just doing DLL? linking to share code uh yeah you'd you'd compile the library well we thought we'd just compile a library and then we'd be able to import that library into both the desktop and the and the um uh and the mobile application but then it ended up being that you couldn't quite do that like i said because there was enums that weren't the same there were uh api calls that weren't the same and so yeah, it kind of, it didn't go as smoothly as we had hoped. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like the, the vision's there, the dream is there. Execution but... falls a little bit short. <laughs> <laughs> right, like this, those quarter cases, they can, yes. they can kill you. Absolutely. So you know, when, when I started in, in mobile, Microsoft, they gave you the IDE, they gave you the framework, and that was pretty much it. You had to create everything from scratch. How has that changed over the years? Well, 
nowadays, um, you can, so I should mention, um, so Microsoft acquired Xamarin and then it took a couple of years, but we finally folded um, the Xamarin technologies into .NET. So what we used to call Xamarin iOS, which was the, Z the iOS SDK that wrapped all the APIs from iOS, that was called Xamarin iOS. Now it's called just .NET iOS. Um, so like if you ever go into your CS Proj and you change your target framework to, let's say, .NET 7.0, so .NET 7, you say .NET 7.0 dash or hyphen iOS. And then now you're targeting the iOS SDK that is just included in .NET. So that's really cool. Um, and along with that, when we folded that in, we created this new technology called .NET MAUI. Um, and .NET MAUI is essentially a cross-platform UI framework. So uh, way back in the day, you would still create your iOS and Android apps and in C-sharp just exactly how you would without C-sharp. Like in iOS, you would use storyboards or nib or zip files. Uh, oh, any of my iOS devs out there know what I'm talking about. Everybody else thinks I'm having a stroke. Um, Android, you would use Android XML files and you could share kind of what we call the business logic behind the scenes. But because on iOS, they call a button or the API for a button is a UI button. Whereas on Android, it's an Android widget button. You couldn't share those code, those codes. You couldn't share those codes because they were using different APIs. Um, what .NET MAUI does, which was previously, um, it evolved from Xamarin Forms, it abstracts those into one API. So I can say in .NET MAUI, put a button on the screen. And then when I click compile and it compiles for iOS, it'll compile down to a UI button. And likewise, when I compile down to Android, it'll compile down to an Android widget button. So that's that's .NET MAUI. It allows us to essentially write our UI code once and <laughs> compile natively to both platforms. And yeah, you know, you still have to tweak it a little bit, like iOS and Android. Like you get the native UI from that, and the native UI will look a little different. So if you want your rounded corners to be exactly the same, you'll probably have to like change that on Android, but not iOS, kind of thing. But but yeah, so that's .NET MAUI. And so really as C-sharp mobile developers nowadays, if we just install Visual Studio and in the little installer guide, you know, it asks you what you're working on. So maybe you're doing web stuff. So you'll check the web components box to bring in ASP.core libraries. And uh, there's another one for mobile. So you just have to check the box when you're installing Visual Studio. And that's basically it. Um, there's... A couple caveats, like right now, if you have an ARM-based uh, PC, like for example, I use, I have a, the M2 MacBook Pro mm -hmm. that's based on an ARM architecture and I run Windows on it using Parallels in a virtual machine. And um, only recently did Visual Studio on ARM add support for MAUI. So if you're listening to this today <laughs> in early 2023, you can still do .NET MAUI on Visual Studio with an ARM PC, but you have to be on the preview version of Visual Studio. But I assume by the time, and this is just a guess, uh, but I assume by the time .NET 8 comes out that the ARM support will be just folded in. Um, but yeah, it's gotten a lot easier nowadays. Um, there's there definitely still some 
oddities. Uh, <laughs> I'll say like, cause I, I do all my coding on a Mac. Yeah. Uh, is I, I don't know, old habits die hard. And back at Xamarin, we had this IDE called Xamarin Studio. And when Microsoft acquired Xamarin, and I wish they didn't do this, but they just took Xamarin Studio and rebranded it as Visual Studio for Mac. And <laughs> I'm sure some corporate executive, probably somebody in marketing who doesn't understand how the ID Xamarin Studio works is like, this is a great idea. What a no-brainer. Um, but in reality, it was called Xamarin Studio because it only supported Xamarin. Um, and now if you're calling it Visual Studio for Mac, everybody's going to assume, hey, this is the same Visual Studio, but now it's on the Mac. So I can make websites and uh, you know do anything I could do in Visual Studio on the PC. And it's like, oh, well, actually, no, uh, we're working on that. Um, and so it's it's gotten a lot closer to feature parity now with Visual Studio for Mac. Um, but yeah, it's kind of still the redhead stepchild. Like Visual Studio gets all the fun updates before Visual Studio for Mac gets them, for example. But I will say, you know, it's it's been a slog as a developer, um, kind of learning these workarounds that sometimes you have to do. Um, I've definitely gotten deeper into like how .NET works under the hood than I'd like to just to <laughs> work it on my back. But, um, you know, the teams have done a really good job where they've combined the code bases a lot. Um, like for example, like Roslyn compilers come out since then and that's cross-platform. So both are using the same Roslyn compiler. So anytime Roslyn gets an update, it updates to both platforms simultaneously. Um, a lot of the, um, business logic behind the scenes of visual studios has been combined. So it's come a long way, <laughs> but uh, a lot of folks won't use it on a Mac. They'll use uh, another IDE called Rider, which is made by JetBrains. If I'm being honest, I probably should use it. Um, but I've been using <laughs> visual studio for Mac since it was Xamarin studio. And it's been seven years now. And I don't know, uh, <laughs> I guess, Part of me likes the pain because <laughs> the familiarity. <laughs> but I, I, I always say, you know, <laughs> old dogs, new tricks, right? Hmm. Yeah, it's little <laughs> things like the keyboard shortcuts are different, obviously. And um, and Visual Studio for Mac has this um, syntax highlighting called Monokai, which Monokai is a popular syntax highlighting um system like you can install monokai plugins for visual studio for code visual studio code for example uh but visual studio for mac is a really unique <laughs> implementation of monokai um and i don't know i, I really like it <laughs> if i'm being honest that's probably the biggest thing keeping me on it but uh but no it's good so yeah if you want to do or if you want to do mobile development in c sharp on a pc just install visual studio you might need to install Visual Studio Preview if you're on ARM today. Uh, and then on the Mac, same idea, just download Visual Studio for Mac and the installer will install all that stuff for you. And if you stick to um, just using the built-in installers to stay up to date with all the latest updates, you'll be good. Um, where I hit these weird cases where I was talking earlier about like, okay, now I got to figure out how .NET workloads work. It's because I 
will jump ahead of the installer. Like I, I like to download the latest bits right away. Um, I manage a couple open source libraries. And so I always want to make sure I have support for my users and make sure that my libraries work with the latest versions, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and that's where I'll get into trouble. But if you're just a good developer and you just wait till it shows up in the installer, you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, I started, as I mentioned, I started in mobile development back in 2000. And um, back then it was all, you know, you're going to synchronize your data, go. Uh, and you didn't have to worry about, well, okay, you did probably have to worry a lot about stuff because synchronizing at the end of the day always got you into problems. How is this idea of, you know, the mobile device being a first class citizen really evolved over the years? Yeah, I mean the synchronizing problem that'll that'll never go away. I mean, I <laughs> funny story. I missed my dentist appointment today because I put it on my calendar, but my calendar didn't sync. Uh, so when I looked at my phone last night before going to bed to see, like, okay, what time's my first meeting? There was nothing there, and then I got frantic phone calls from the dentist, but I was in the shower. So long story short, synchronizing data is hard, um, but. Yeah, I mean, with mobile, you've got uh, some built-in options like um, Android has its own um, backup and cloud storage. iOS has their own backup and cloud storage with iCloud. And those are, those work. Those are great, um, but they're very siloed. And so if you ever have a user, like, because most people make apps for both platforms nowadays. And mm -hmm. I think most users, or I know most users, all users expect that, like, if if I go to Tom and I don't know, if, do you use Android or iOS, Tom? I use uh, iOS. Ah, dick. Okay. So we're both iOS users, but let's say we both go to an Android user and go, check out this awesome app. This app this is my favorite. <laughs> um, they're immediately going to look on the app store for the same app, with the same name. And I think what most people don't realize is as developers, you basically have to rewrite that app um, that you made for iOS for Android unless you're using something like uh, .NET MAUI with C-sharp that can compile down to both. And so, so yeah, then things start to get tricky because if you want to support users across devices, because let's say tomorrow I go buy the latest Pixel phone um, and I still have the accounts with, you know, the previous apps I try to log in, but none of my data is there because it was all just backed up in iCloud. Well, that's a problem. So, yes. so yeah, that's, that's kind of where you get into um, kind of doing it yourself. Um, and so you've got to have some cloud service. Highly recommend AWS. <laughs> a little biased, but, um, but yeah, you pretty much every mobile app needs some sort of cloud backend. Um, something where, you know, it could be as simple as just retrieving a environment variable or a secret like um like when the apps i have in the app store when they first launch they'll first ping a couple apis to pull down the latest um well stored secrets so <laughs> like uh yeah you don't want to have public apis um but um uh, how do you avoid that when you have a new user so and, oh, and then on top of that, the other challenge with mobile is if you ever want to change anything in your app, 
you have to completely rebuild the app. You have to submit those new files to the iOS and Android app store. You have to wait for iOS and Android to approve it. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. If they don't approve it, then you have to go through this appeals process. It's a huge pain to push out an app update. And so if you, for example, just um, wanted to update your API, well, that API URL is probably hard-coded into your app. And so you can do all this work to update your APIs, but eventually you have to push out a new app update. Um, and then what ends up happening is not everybody updates their apps. And listeners, please, as a mobile app developer, I'm begging you, just leave automatic updates on. Because <laughs> one of the hardest things is maintaining older versions of your app. And eventually you just have to break it because, uh, for example, the first app I ever pushed to the app store, it's called Pun Day. Uh, if, if you're into puns, um, we we used to push out a new pun every Monday for you to guess. And they're all like fun drawings of something's going on, but the images and the actions are a pun they have to guess. And um, yeah, I had people still using Pun Day version 2.2, which I pushed out in probably 2016, five years later. And, you know, eventually it got to the point where it was just one person left. And it's like, all right, well, sorry, friend, but I've, I've got to do this breaking change. But, but yeah, so as you update things uh, on your back end, you have to be cognizant of how many users are still on older versions. And so my lesson learned is you store those in the cloud. So when the app initializes, have it pull down some information. So like what's the latest API URL and um, what's the API key for it and, and things like that, where if you need to change something, like maybe your API key got exposed and you got to rotate your secrets. Well, if it's stored in the cloud, you can easily rotate it. The app will automatically grab it and you don't have to break anybody. Whereas if you don't, then you have to re-hard code it with the new secret in your mobile app and then redeploy to the app stores and then cross your fingers and hope that your users update before they leave a one-star review saying, wow, this app doesn't work anymore. It sucks. I, nobody should use it. So it's it's weird. It's weird out there, man. Like, especially when I talk to friends who just do um, web development, like when you push an update to a website, Everybody gets it. <laughs> yeah. Like, as soon as the next user goes to that website, they got it. Uh, so there's all these like, yeah, these little pain points in mobile that, I mean, now the industry has all this knowledge from <laughs> the experience, but, you know, if you're going through it for the first time, especially as an indie de independent developer, like the apps I have in the app store, they're free, they're open source. I don't make any money off them. Um, you know, I had to learn <laughs> all these lessons the hard way, but yeah, long story short. Uh, so to answer your question, yeah, every mobile app needs a cloud backend and, and what you're going to have to do is make sure you store users data in your cloud. So if they ever switch devices and they log in say on Android, when they were an iOS user, all that information is still there. Um, especially if they, if they purchase anything, like you can have in-app purchase or a subscription and Apple will remember that and Google will remember that on your behalf. Um, 
which makes it easy to like restore subscriptions. And I'm sure you, everybody's seen that in their apps where you get the latest iPhone and then you open the app for the first time and you have to click the restore purchases button. Um, that all go through, goes through Apple. But if you switch devices, well, you should, well, I feel like <laughs> you should honor that. And the user who paid you $20 for a year subscription should still be able to use that. And so you'll have to store that information as well. But then, yeah, when it comes to syncing data, that gets tough too, because mobile apps are go offline all the time. Like you're riding on a bus, there's no cell phone signal, or you're going to the subway, you're on an airplane, anywhere. Even just switching between Wi-Fi and cellular, you're going to drop packets. And there could be a case where, let's say I'm on a plane. Like I, I just flew back from Sydney last week and that's a, that was a 14 hour flight. Got to enjoy a middle seat and coach. Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> Not a lot of us business class. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I'm on the phone, I'm doing work and I'm saving things, but my phone's not connected to the internet. So what I assume as a user is going to happen is next time the app has connectivity, it'll update. Um, but maybe I also did a little bit of work on my computer and now we're touching the same file in two different locations, both are offline and they'll try to sync when we get back online. So it, it can get really hard. Um, there's a lot of libraries that help you with that, but yeah, man, um, the syncing problem that that'll never go away. <laughs> right. So these days you work in the, uh, sort of developer advocacy group, uh, and you know, you're one of my colleagues. So how, how has cloud given really helped mobile deliver mobile application developers to deliver solutions? Oh yeah, it's been huge. I mean, you know, I think back to when I started as a as an engineer. I I graduated college in 2009, started my first job in 2010, and you know, if we were making an app and we needed a server for its backend, well, I literally had to purchase that server, which in reality, because it's a big company, meant I had to go to procurement. I had to give them say like, I want this server from Dell, this like 16 CPUs, this much RAM. They would place an order and I would get it six to eight weeks later. It would literally show up on my desk. I would get this giant box from Dell. I'd go walk that down to the data center. I'd have to find an empty rack where I could slide in the server. I'd rack and stack it, connect all the cables. You still have to install the operating system. You have to have a whole security team that uh, makes sure that there's no security vulnerabilities, especially if you're going to um, make it a public API. And the just all of that overhead was literally just so I could have an API for the app we were working on. And nowadays, if I want to do that, a couple clicks of the mouse, I can have an API up and running in the cloud in seconds. Um, so that, that velocity has been huge. Um, it's lowered the bear, excuse me, it's lowered the barrier of entry so that like individual developers like myself, I can now create mobile apps and I don't have to have, um, a server running 24 seven in my house. Um, I don't have to worry about, uh, like disaster recovery. Right. So like, let's say, yeah, I live in, well, I live in California and our power company, PG&E, likes to turn off the power all the time. 
um, which is, that's a whole different story. <laughs> but, but yeah, let's say the power goes off and I have this server running in my house. Well, now my app doesn't work because it can't talk to that server. Um, or, you know, let's say like flooding comes through, whatever, natural disaster, you know, the cloud's got you covered. Like AWS has disaster recovery. They've got multiple data centers where you can sync your data back and forth. You know, you can automatically sync like your uh, databases, for example, and have them automatically fail over. But, but yeah, for me, I think the biggest benefit is just anybody can do it. Um, you don't have to have thousands, millions of dollars to stand up a data center and buy servers um, you don't have to have this overhead of like security vulnerabilities because if you if you use services like you know, Lambda, Lambda allows me just to write the code I need to write, publish it to the cloud, and it just kind of works. And you know, I can rely on the engineers at AWS to keep that um, all the operating system up to date, the security vulnerabilities patched. Uh, I can rely on the uptime. Uh, I don't have to manage any of that. And, and because they do it at such a big scale, an insanely large scale, it rule large numbers means it's cheaper for us. So like the apps I have in the app store, you know, I still pay about a hundred bucks a month uh, to keep them up and running. But you know, just buying a server would be thousands of dollars <laughs> and then maintaining that and all the time that would take. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't got any of that. So um, yeah, it's kind of democratized the ability to write software, create apps, and now anybody can do it. And and we saw that like a lot of startups came around after we'll say the cloud was invented. You know, once you could just spit up a virtual machine in the cloud instead of having to have this huge investment. Well, now I don't need any money to get, get off the ground and I can start my business. So yeah, hugely, hugely beneficial. Um, and, and it goes both ways because, you know, AWS isn't doing this out of the kindness of their heart. Like they've got to buy the servers and stuff, but uh, they can cover their costs and it's cheaper for us as independent developers or startups and, and, and everybody wins. Um, so, so yeah, um, that's one of the reasons why I love or have been a developer advocate for mobile developers, but focusing on cloud for so long because every app's going to need a cloud backend. And, um, and as mobile developers, like we need those resources uh, to learn how to do it. And you know, I try to provide examples and give talks and host workshops um, on here's how to do it. Here's some best practices. You know, here's, here's the mistakes I made. So you don't have to make them um, and try to, you know, get those things written down, get them into open source libraries, get them into blog posts, get them into videos um, just so that the information's out there because, you know, we all, we all benefit from the more we can share. Um, because if I spend three hours trying to figure something out and I can write a blog post on it, well, now you don't have to <laughs> waste three hours of your life you can essentially copy paste my code or read my implementation. Sure. And, and Hey, you don't have to worry about the scale if your app blows up either. Right. Oh, scale, like scaling a mobile app. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, certainly, you know, be aware of it because, you know, cloud charges you based off of usage. So 
yeah, if all of a sudden you get a million users, that's going to be a lot more API calls, uh, and you might see a bigger <laughs> bill. But um, but I will say, uh, you know, AWS is pretty forgiving on the first time. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people who try out cloud for the first time, forget that you leave a virtual machine running, and all of a sudden you get a bill for a thousand bucks at the end of the month, and you're like, oh, whoops, I forgot to hit the stop button. Um, you can always call support, and if uh, if it's your first time and you explain it to them, they're pretty forgiving, but, but yeah, in terms of scale, um, they'll, they'll scale for you. They'll scale infinitely. Um, maybe you want that. Maybe you don't, you can, <laughs> you can always toggle that to like, say only scale this much, <laughs> but, but yeah, that was the other big thing, right? Like back in the day before the cloud, if, if your app went viral, um, you know, websites being down, mobile apps being down was a real thing because, in the background, you've got engineers scrambling to literally install more servers and increase that capacity. Whereas, you know, not that AWS has infinite capacity, uh, but for all intents and purposes, it's it's pretty infinite. You know, there's finite of people, finite amount of people in the world, uh, and you know, there's a they've got enough servers there to cover most of them. <laughs> So uh, you've been with us now for about six months. How do you like it? I'm really enjoying it. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a different culture than Microsoft. Like I said, I was at Microsoft for seven years after the Xamarin acquisition and actually helped start up. I was one of the first members on their Azure advocacy team. So uh, coming over here, uh, working with, um, AWS as a .NET developer advocate, um, lots of similarities, um, but, uh, just, you know, little things like, like Amazon loves writing stuff down or the, the culture at Amazon is very much like, okay, let's, let's get it in writing first. And, you know, when I first started here, I was like, oh, like, can I just do it? Like I could be <laughs> done by now. Or I could spend a week writing this three-page document with, with like charts and graphs and appendix. Um, but, you know, well, well, I still don't love <laughs> that part because my favorite part of the job is uh, I love writing code. I love, you know, getting on stage and talking at conferences. I love hosting workshops. Um, but what I've at least come to learn and find out is when you write stuff down, uh, once it's defined once it's well once it's written down it can be reviewed <laughs> and then once you get input from a couple folks um you can really start to polish this idea to the point where when it comes time to execute it's super easy uh like one of the things i'm focusing on right now when i'm not traveling is uh working on improving the docs um with you know Specifically for .NET developers, um, but also all developers. So I, you know, I'm going at it through the lens of I'm a .NET developer. I'm trying to, to create a, a, a S3 trigger in AWS Lambda, for example. And as I'm going through it, I'm struggling. And you know, I'm an AWS employee, and I can't really find where the documentation is or where code samples are. Uh, so taking those lessons learned and working now with the docs team and a couple of folks on the developer advocacy teams um, to, to help improve it. 
And so, um, and so hopefully, <laughs> once once we get some improvements going, that it'll make everybody's lives better because, you know, I just it took me about five months to learn that we had this comprehensive set of samples for .NET developers for AWS. And like, why are we hiding these? Like, let's make it front and center. Like we should have big red neon signs with arrows saying like, click here. This is where you can find everything you need. Um, Cause you know, when I was making my first AWS backend, um, I tried to find them, couldn't. And then, you know, Google eventually took me to some, what I'll say random blog post. you know, not, not AWS official blog post, which was really, really helpful. And I appreciate the, uh, the write-up, but, you know, my process as a engineer, as a developer is I try to, or I do, I go to the source first. You know, if I'm doing something on AWS, I'm going to look at AWS's docs because they should be latest, greatest, up to date. Um, and then if I can't find something there, then I kind of go out to go out into the wild and that's where I'll source, you know, try and find information on third party blogs or anything like that. So, um, so yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, everybody at ABS is super, super kind. Um, and learning that culture where writing things down, like writing down exactly how I'm going to execute this.net docs improvement project, uh, has been interesting because, um, I'm an engineer because I don't like writing. (laughs) (laughs) My mom was actually an English teacher, so she would, she hates when I say that, but um, I, yeah, I like writing code. I'm not necessarily writing down execution plans, but, but no, it's definitely something I've kind of learned to appreciate and, and yeah, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I, I will say yeah, it's been about five months, six months, seven months, a uh, couple months, less than a year. And I just kind of now feel like I'm getting my legs underneath me and chatting with a lot of folks at AWS. Uh, you kind of hear a similar sentiment like, yeah, it took me about a year till I figured everything out, like where where to go if I needed something or who to ask if I needed something or just how to get little things done, like, you know, the, all the other things that come with your job, right? Like I didn't realize I had to do things like enroll my HSA through fidelity and like little things like that, like, <laughs> like or how, how do you find your pay stub and <laughs> like all that admin stuff. But no, I'm really enjoying it. I'm very, yeah, very glad to be here. So of all the shiny new things you got to play with, what's your favorite AWS service? Ooh, good question. Um, I love serverless and a lot of this is because of my, um, mobile background and my say independent developer background, but, um, yeah. So the serverless offering at AWS is called Lambda. So you know, I've already mentioned it a couple of times, but, um, it's great. Cause I, like I said earlier, like I don't make any money off my apps but they still need a cloud backend. And so what I've kind of figured out is you can use serverless APIs. So um, write some code that you need to execute in AWS Lambda, publish that to the cloud, and 
that code's only running when you need it. So only when my mobile app launches, will it call that API. And if all of my users are asleep, then what AWS does with Lambda is they spin those resources all the way down. So there's no code running on any server. It's still listening. It's still anticipating um, the API request. But what's great about that is when you're not using any resources, you don't get charged for resources. <laughs> and so your your bill at the end of the month um, is a lot cheaper than if you use something like, um, say, like Elastic Beanstalk, which is also great, but you're essentially reserving... Um, you're reserving a CPU, you're reserving memory on their servers, and that's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. You got you own it 24-7 for as long as you um, uh, keep that subscription, but maybe nobody's using it. Maybe all your users are asleep, um, or maybe you have this seasonal app like taxes. Like We all in the US have to submit our taxes this week. Um, and that's very seasonal. Like I don't know many people who are doing their taxes in October, November. Um, but yeah, if you paid for a service like Elastic Beanstalk, well, you still got that CPU, um, those cores, uh, you still got that memory all reserved for you, whether users are using it or not. So yeah, my favorites always, always going to be serverless, um, for, for that reason. And, and I highly recommend it to to any other folks who are again looking to create their first mobile app you're not a you don't have million dollar venture capitalist funding you just want to make something for free and play around with it uh lambda is super super cheap like my serverless bill is usually around uh like usually less than a dollar for my mobile apps that have a couple hundred monthly active users um most most of the costs that I get hit with from the cloud is for uh, database usage. <laughs> you still have to store that data somewhere, but at least your your APIs can be cheap. <laughs> so I, I can imagine working in developer relations, you're you're pretty active on social media. Where can people get in touch with you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is the Code Traveler, um, and that's that's still the best place to find me. Twitter's not been great lately, um, but I do appreciate that. We we still have our little tech community in there. Um, so yeah, uh, you can find me out on Twitter at The Code Traveler. Uh, I also have a website, codetraveler.io, where you can keep up to date with my latest blog posts. So again, .NET, mobile, C-sharp stuff, that's, that's what you can find there. Sure. And uh, actually, if you can send me those uh, afterwards, I will put them in the uh, podcast episode notes so people can get in touch with you. Sure. Well, Brandon, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, as anybody who's listening can probably tell by the amount of times I've been laughing at this. So um, <laughs> uh, great to have you on the podcast. And uh, maybe we'll have you back sometime else to talk about uh, more on mobile development. Love it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Tom. Well, thanks a lot. And uh We'll uh, catch up with you uh, next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Basement Programmer Podcast. I really appreciate you tuning in. And if you have any feedback or comments, of course, send me an email. Also, please consider subscribing. It lets me know that you're enjoying this production. I'm looking forward to you joining me for the next episode of the Basement Programmer Podcast. In the meantime, take care, stay safe, and keep learning.